0: You've heard the phrase, the truth hurts, haven't you? Right? The truth hurts. In, in most cases, when you say it, you're talking about the person you're talking to, right? You're thinking about the other person. You're not thinking about yourself. Okay? Uh, so when you speak the truth, even though it hurts, you're... Let me back up. When you ever spoke the truth, does it hurt yourself? You hurt yourself with the truth. Think about it for a minute. Here's what I'm getting at, because I don't think it's coming out very well. I I warned you it would be a rough morning. (laughs) Thanks, Samuel. Jesus continued to speak the truth, even though he knew the repercussions would be negative. That it wouldn't be hurting the Jews that he was telling the truth to, but it would come back and sting him. But even though he knew that, he moved forward and continued to expound upon the truth Knowing that it would go from persecution to them wanting to kill him. Okay? Now, the truth hurts, doesn't it? When you think of that phrase, you're usually almost always thinking about, when I speak it, and that's going to hurt that person. But when we speak the truths of God's word, when we speak the truth of the gospel, we've got to understand something. The truth, that truth that we share might come back and hurt us just like it did Jesus. Let me give you a case in point. Go ahead. This is all power of the little introduction introducing us to our text this morning. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to give you an example of this. You see, all of a sudden, it's not so easy to tell the truth when you know that telling the truth could come back and sting you, harm you, hurt you, right? Well, there was a disciple of Paul that struggled with this concept. His name was Timothy. He's a pastor. And in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Second Timothy, Paul says this. He writes to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's referring to God ordaining Timothy to preach and teach the gospel. Verse 7, For God has not given us, Paul writing to Timothy, a spirit of timidity, of or even cowardice, the Greek word means, but of power and love and of discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed, excuse me, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. In other words, Timothy, when we preach the gospel, when we teach the truths of God's word, don't be ashamed. What does he mean by that? He means this, when you preach the gospel, when you share the truths of God's word, when you share a truth from God's word, a verse, sometimes people aren't going to like it. And so they're going to ridicule you. And in those moments, we're tempted to what? Shrink back, shrivel back. Right? And Paul says, no, move forward. Don't be ashamed or the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering, even if going forward with the truth means that you're going to suffer for it, move forward. Go ahead, suffer for Christ's sake. You see that? Now, let's go back to our passage this morning. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to read together verses 19 through 30, verses 19 through 30. In our passage this morning, we have Jesus refusing to shrink back. And he had, humanly speaking, every reason to do so. Okay? He's further expounding on who he is, but the more he expounded on who he is, the more they hated him for it. Look at verse 16, 17, and 18, because we're going to catapult us into our passage this morning. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. That was one thing because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered and said, my father is working until now and I myself am working. In other words, what I do is what the father does. I'm imitating my father. That's what he's saying. Verse 18, for this reason, Because he said he was imitating the Father, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also, in addition, was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So what did Jesus do in verse 19? He walked away and left them alone. No. He began to expound verses 19 through 30 more of who he is. He was digging in the truth knowing that it would come back and harm him and ultimately result in his Death. Let's stand together at the reading of God's Word, verses 19 through 30 this morning. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself." And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he he is the son of man Do not marvel at this For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and Will come forth Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment verse 30 I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Oh God, may what we read about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, be reflected in our lives. The sons and daughters of God adopted by you, redeemed by the Son of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh well, Father, may, may we be molded into what we read in this passage this morning as we read about the oneness of the Father and the Son. It is a complete oneness, a total oneness, a perfect oneness that Lord God, we would understand that we are also called into this oneness as we will read that our Savior prayed for on our behalf. So, oh God, it just it just it's incredible. It, I, I marvel that you would call us into the oneness of the fellowship of the Trinity itself. To experience the, the the love and the relationship that the Father and the Son have. This is part, the grand part of the call to salvation to come into the oneness of the Father and the Son. so, God, help us to understand not just the theology, but understand the practicality of it for our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus had just finished defending his healing on the Sabbath. We read that in verses 16 and 17. And we also see that in verse 18, how the Pharisees or the Jews in general, particularly the Jewish leaders, responded to that defense. Okay? How did they respond? They accused him of blasphemy. Blasphemy. Verse 18, the very end. But also we're calling God his own father. You're calling God your own father. Now, we understand what they meant by this, or what they viewed this as, last phrase, making himself equal with God. You're making yourself equal with God. How can you do that? That's blasphemy. Now, Jesus was not claiming equality with God in the sense of a second rival deity. Like, here's God, and here I am too, and here we're rivaling with one another. That might have been how the Jews took it, but that's not how Jesus was meaning it or saying it. And we know that as he expounds upon this. Instead of a rival, so to speak, he was expressing an equality in the sense of unity and submission. A oneness that was there and so sweet between him and the Father that he could do nothing but the will of the Father. That was his passion. That was his goal. That's what turned him on. That was his love. That was his appetite. It was his food. It was to do the will of his father. Jesus was not claiming equality in the sense of a second rival deity. It was equality expressed in the sense of unity and oneness. A unity and oneness, by the way, which the son expressed in submission To the father, not rivalry. What we have here is the son submitting to the father, not being a rival to God. As the Jews most likely took it. So we're not concerned with monotheism here. We're concerned with a rich Trinitarianism. Very rich and very deep. It's about a relationship of revealing and imitating. That's what this is. It's a relationship of revealing and imitating that is rooted in a love for one another. When you love someone, you're going to want to reveal them and imitate them, aren't you? that's what's driving Jesus is this profound, infinite, eternal love for the Father to where he wants to imitate his Father, not rival him. That's why he's saying, I'm, do, I'm about doing the works of my Father. And when I, everything that comes from my mouth, everything I teach, everything I say about myself or say about you, I'm giving you the words of my Father. You see that? And it's not that Jesus has to do this. He wants to do this. It's his appetite. It's his joy. Even though telling the truth hurt him, He still had a joy in telling the truth because it came from who? His father, who he so deeply and richly loved. So it's about a relationship of revealing and imitating that is a relationship rooted in a mutual love between a father and a son. That's what separates Christianity apart from all other religions. It's about a relationship. I'm not saved because I understand the Bible. I don't get saved because I understand and I can preach to you and teach you some truths. It's not because I got my doctrine down and I have theology. It's because I pray. It's because I talk to God. It's because I know He hears me. I know He loves me. I take His word as face value. And so when you're in the Word of God, it prompts you. It puts you in your heart a, a, a wantingness, not a willingness, a wantingness to talk back to God what you learn about him. It's a relationship. There's no other religion like this. Muslims don't have this. It's not, you're not going to find this in Buddhism or any kind of ism or any other kind of, rela- any kind of religion. So we're not concerned with monotheism here as much as a rich Trinitarianism. And it's not only, it's, it's not that Jesus acts, he doesn't act independently of the Father. As a matter of fact, he, he he's very dependent upon the Father. He does not want to act independently in and of itself. He wants to do. It so, so tells us another thing. You know, we talk about this personal relationship with God as if it's just me and God. Yes, and. And. We have a relationship with God we are not independent in a relationship with God even though it's personal It's not independent. I'm dependent upon Christ, but I'm also dependent upon you I think we as a church really miss out on that how dependent we are one with another And we think we can do this thing called Christianity all by ourselves without any help And I think that's why so many Christians are starving That's why so many Christians are weak. They don't tap into, number one, the source, God's word. Number two, God's church, the redeemed. So it's not only that he does not act independently of the Father. He does not want to act independently of the Father. If you're a Christian, you don't want to act independently of the Father or of his church. And I love what Jesus says. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Look at 19 and 20. Look, verse 19, I think of the word imitation. Verse 20, love. And let me connect those two. Look at verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. That's nothing but what? Imitation, right? I want to imitate him. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Verse 20, I love this, look at this, this is beautiful. For the father, now the subject's the father. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. You see, here. look at the relationship. The son loves the father so much he wants to imitate him. The father loves the the son so much he wants to reveal to him what he's doing because he knows the son's all about imitating him and he's going to reveal him. Do you see this going on? Beloved, beloved, we are brought up. When you're saved, when you're born again, you are brought into this holy relationship. We're brought into this oneness. We'll get to that in just a minute. Actually, go to chapter 17. Let's just do it now. Okay, let's just do it now. I got your attention. Chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays for this oneness on your behalf so, so here in chapter 5 We are with this oneness between the Father and the Son And now in chapter 17 Jesus prays I want all those who follow me I want all those who listen to my words And hear my voice and trust me Father I'm praying that they would enjoy this oneness That you and I have Isn't that incredible Look at the end of chapter 17 Actually look at verse 11 we're going to work up our way up to the last two verses seventeen eleven notice what he says i 'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Talk about his disciples This is, this is the last night. this is the Lord this is his last evening he 's with his disciples. He knows what 's happening. he knows what 's going on he 's going to get arrested a little bit later on in a few more hours, okay and so he 's praying he 's praying on behalf of the disciples he 's going to be leaving. And that's why he says, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, they're going to stay here in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are what? One. He's praying this to his Father for you. Wow. Wow. Verse 25 and 26 now, like I said. Look how he ends the prayer. Oh, righteous father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. I've revealed it to them. Everything I said, everything I did was to reveal you, to manifest you, father, okay? And I will and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. He said, talk about this oneness in a different way. Well, what's he saying? Look at the very end of verse 26. So the love with which you love me, he's talking to the Father, the love, Father, that you have for me may be in them, and I in them. Why would the Son want the Father's love in you? So that you, you can love him, the Son, the exact same way the Father does. A love for God is a gift from God. Here's the thing, you can't love God without loving Jesus. We live in a world today that says there's many ways to God. False. Jesus is going to say in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the way. Now, those are words articulate. There's only one, the truth of life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We see it here in the oneness of the Son. You can't go around Jesus if, to, to, we're going to read a little bit. To honor the Father is to honor the Son. To honor the Son is to honor the Father, to love the Father is to love the Son. What's he taught This is the Trinitarianism. It's so rich and so deep it's the relationship between the Father and the Son. And here Jesus is praying that I want them to enjoy the oneness, the love and the unity, Father, that we have. And not only that, if we're going to enjoy it, it's going to be forever. Wow. Isn't that something? Let's stop here for a minute. I just want to stop here for a minute. This is what preaching and teaching and reading Scripture, memorizing Scripture, studying Scripture, it's what it's all about right here, right here. It's about the relationship. It's about knowing God deeply and richly as the way the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. We are now brought up into, we're born again into this relationship. It's to understand and know what the Father is doing. In other words, every time we're in the Word, I want to know Father, what are you doing? What do you like? What are you up to? Why do I memorize Scripture? What pleases you? What makes you happy? who are you about, what are you about, and we learn this over and over and over, right? When we do that, we're being, we're being incorporated into that oneness that the Father and the Son have. We're being set apart from the world and set unto God himself. It's a good way of putting it. I just wanted to point out in Jesus' prayer, he prays for this oneness that he talks about between him and his Father in chapter 5. So go back to chapter 5 just for a minute. So I'm really parking at a couple of these verses here, 19 and 20. And uh, I, actually, I want to make one comment, and we're going to go to some other verses. Because I just, my, my whole point here this morning is I don't want this to just be a theology or a doctrine of the Trinity that is some true high pie-in-the-sky Christianity kind of thing that's out there that we just believe But I I want to search some other scriptures that bring it home into our lives, that we are to live out each and every day. Does that make sense? If I don't do that, chapter 5 here is just going to be, oh, Jesus is getting deep in knowledge about who he and the Father are. Ooh, I know some facts about the Trinity. It's more than that, folks. And let me show you. Paul, for example, in Ephesians 5, turn there if you will. Ephesians chapter 5. The apostle writes about this oneness. We know he's thinking this oneness because of what he says in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5, therefore be what? Imitators of God. That's what Jesus was talking about back in chapter 5. My my whole life is about imitating my father. Well, folks, now that we're saved, we've been adopted into this family, we too now take on the desire of wanting to imitate God, right? And that's why Paul the Apostle says, therefore, therefore, what? Based upon putting off and putting on, putting off the old way and replace that old way with Christ, the new man in Christ, the new creature in Christ, you have new desires now, follow after them. He goes, now imitate God as beloved what? Children. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the first resurrected of the family of God. He's the king. He's the chief, right? And then there's the church. And if Christ is called as the head of the church to imitate the Father, the rest of us are called to what? Imitate the Father. But what exactly are we to imitate? Look what he says. Walk in love. Wow. Of all the attributes... The Spirit moved Paul to write about here, it's love. To love the Father. And walk in love. Not just a noun, but a verb is in mind here. Walk. An activity. A doing. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. There's the example and gave his life for you. Unto sacrifice. Unconditionally and sacrificially. And not only that, an offering and a sacrifice to God. As Jesus serving humanity as jesus was walking his way to the cross he was doing it as a sacrifice to god as a fragrant aroma because he knew that pleased his father but i want you to i want to point out one other thing this is not a love absent of morality this is not a love absent of righteousness this is not a love absent of anything like that by any Stretch or imagination. As a matter of fact, Paul will go on to expound this is a pure love. God, This is a love defined by God, not the world. Notice what he says. Verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. In other words, the love that we are called to imitate is a righteous love. It's a pure love. It's a holy love. It's a love that has morality hooked on to it. We live in a world today that says, love just accepts people just the way they are. And I I go back, no, no, I can love somebody without accepting their lifestyle. But the world says, no, 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 we're going to redefine love in a way that to love them means you accept their lifestyle. You accept all that they do wrong. No, that's not God's love is a righteous love. It's a holy love. It's a separate love than the world. It has totally set different characteristics to it. And so that's why you have verse 3, but immorality, and impurity, or greed must not even be named among you. So first and foremost, it's a pure love. It's a righteous love. Verse 7 and 11, therefore do not be partakers with them. It's an alien love. It's a love that separates us from the rest of the world. Look at verse 7. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. How do we expose them? By being different. By walking in righteousness. So here's true love. I'm going to walk in a righteous way that pleases the Lord. At least try to. When I mess up, what do we do? We confess our sin. We get back up, right? We live a repentant lifestyle, right? And I all God's people said, amen, right? See, repentance is a lifestyle for us, right? Because I sin every day. I just want you all to know that up front, being honest. Whether thought, emotion, deed, whatever, I don't want to. But you know what? When I, I don't want to sin, I still find myself messing up and sinning. Right? It could just be in a thought. That's why I make the statement, I know I sin every day. But I know my Lord tells me what to do when I do sin every day. That's to confess it. That's to admit, God, those thoughts were, they were not of you. They're hurtful and harmful. I wasn't thinking well of that part. That was judgmental up here, or bad feelings. God, forgive me. That's feelings. That's more like, that's going towards hatred and anger. That's not good. Or when I actually do say something that hurts somebody or does something or commits an act of sin. In all those circumstances is what I'm thinking about when I say we sin daily in one way, shape, or form. But God in His love has told us what to do. To confess, to agree with Him that it is sin. And to get, a, get back up. And to follow and pursue Christ. And you can only do that when you're resting in the gospel, by the way. Because you don't get back up to work your way out of that sin. You get back up and you stand again on the righteousness of Christ. He's the one that justifies. That's what I mean by rest in his finished work. That's part of your confession. It's part of your repentance. Knowing that your strength comes back. It comes from the cross itself. What Christ has already done for you. So it's an alien love, seven and 11. Oh, look at verse 10. It's a love that seeks to please God. Don't you love that? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Why are we here this morning? We're trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. Why do you have your devotions? You're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Why do you memorize scripture or, or read scripture? Because what, what, you want to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And all oh, what I'm saying here flows Out of verses 1 and 2, you want to imitate God. Peter turns it up a notch in his letter. In 1 Peter, he turns this up a notch because he takes this concept and he puts it in the context of suffering. Well, if I try to please the Lord and live righteously, I'm going to get attacked for it. There's going to be some negative repercussions. Remember the introduction with Timothy? Right, right. Not just in sharing the gospel, but in wanting to live that kind of life that pleases the Lord. it can come back to bite you on the job. It can come back to hurt you with someone in your family or, or a neighbor who just don't understand where you're coming from. And they ridicule you and they laugh at you. And they, they think you're holier than thou. And, and it can be a persecution in the form of they stay, you know, they no longer want to associate you with, with you much anymore. Right? And that hurts. Let's be honest. That, that can hurt. So Peter comes along. He talks about it. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Just listen to this. You know, if you want to turn there, that's fine. But I'm going to be here for a moment or two. I just want to develop the context. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice... We rejoice in what Christ has done for us. We rejoice in verse 4. We have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which does not fade It's reserved in heaven for us, and we're protected by God till the day we die when we when we receive that inheritance. Verse 6, in this inheritance, what Christ has done for you, you greatly rejoice even though now, while on earth, this day, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Who has had a trial this past week? Raise your hand. They come in manifold ways. Through people, through circumstances, through events. And and, and a lot of times, most times at least, we're not in control of them. They just come whether we like it or not. Right? So Peter goes on for a little bit. He goes on. We go to verses 14 and 16. It's in this context we read this. Listen. In the context of suffering... In the context of trials, we read this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but, the, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Even when I'm hurting, Peter goes, yeah. Still pursue Christ. But it's in the pursuit of Christ that I suffer. It's because of that I suffer. So if I keep pursuing, I'm going to keep suffering. Yeah. Why? Because it is written, you shall, future, you will be holy, for I am holy. Let's stop right there. God's goal for his children is what? Holiness. It's in holiness that we're going to experience that oneness in its totality. Now, that's called glory, isn't it? That's called heaven. But that's what awaits you if you're in Christ. That's what awaits all who are in Christ. But we go on. Let's just go to chapter 2, for instance. Just verse 20. And then 21 and follow. Look at verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, see, there it is. Right there. There's the concept. If you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Well, where in the world am I getting an example of this at? Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We're reading about his steps in the Gospel of John. We read about his steps in the four Gospels. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, when he was sinned against, he did not respond with sin. How often do we respond to sin with further sin? How, when, when someone attacks me, I get defensive. And then I get self-centered because I feel that I need, all I can do is not defend myself. We do that in relationships all the time. I have to often, that often happens in marital relationships, when you get in a fight, right? Yeah. We feel like we always have to defend ourselves. Instead of just saying, you know, there might be an element of truth to what you're saying. And I need to take what you're saying and take it to God in prayer. And say, cry out to God and say, God, is there any element of truth to what this person is saying? It hurts. I hope not. But if it is, please tell me. Because I want to confess it. Because all I want to do is imitate you. At that point, it doesn't come about, it's not about me. It's not him. All right, let's go back. Those are just some applications, I think, that came from or come actually apply from Romans from John chapter 5. Let's continue on through our text. We're going to finish in just a couple of minutes. I love the end of verse 20. He says, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. You've seen the works up to now. There's even more, and they're going to be greater and greater. Chapter 11, what do we have? Raising Lazarus from the dead, right? Right? So there's going to be greater works later on. He's going to walk on water. He's going to be feeding a the thousands. There's, there's so much going on here. 21, explain further what he means by verse 20. For just as the father raises the dead and gives him life, there it is, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Wow. And he wishes to give life to those the Father is giving life to. We're going to read that in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. And those the Father gives to me, I I lose none of them. I cast none of them out. He came to get those that the Father was giving to the Son. And those that the Father is giving to the Son are those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. That's why he came. He goes on. So verse 21, one of the greater things he could do is raise the dead and give life to them. He's a life giver. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Oh, my goodness. He gives life, but he gives judgment. He gives life everlasting. By the way, Jesus gives physical life and eternal life. He was there in creation. You see the oneness here? See the deity that's just embedded in this? But all of a sudden, you have now the Father giving the Son judgment. He's giving all judgment into the Son's hands. Why? He gives the reason in verse 23. That's why you see the two words, so that. Here's why. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Anybody who says, I love God... But does not honor Jesus Christ for who he is, are, are, are self-deluded. They're, they're delusional. That's not true. According to this right here. Right? Well, I believe Jesus was a good person and I love God. No. I believe Jesus was a great prophet and yet, oh, I love God. No. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. That's what it means by honor Him. For what? Who He really is. That's why He had such boldness to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, Jesus, how narrow are you? Yes, He is. Because broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. You know why it's called narrow? because it's only through Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Jesus. Read that over and over and over again. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word What I say and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Wow, praise the Lord. If you're saved, you don't have to face future judgment, do you? You're no longer judged. Verse 25, I think, is on the heels of 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is. What do you mean now is? Because he's there. He's talking. God and the flesh and in the incarnate, he's talking right now. So that's why he means, and now is, because I'm here telling you. I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For thus, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has the authority to give life or to give judgment. It's his call. Why? Because he's going to carry out and do it exactly the way the father would. He's carrying out exactly the will of the father. That's why the father has given all this to him, the giving of life and judgment. Because the father knows as I've revealed this to my son, my son's just going to imitate me to the nth degree perfectly. He said, so I give this all to my son because I know it's going to be done exactly the way I want it to be done. That's how one we are. That's how close we are. That's how, that's how loving we are one with another. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. 28 and 29, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Physical. There's a physical resurrection here. So when Jesus says giving life, he means it in two ways. Number one, according to the tombs, he's gonna, he gives physical life. In the end, everybody from the tombs is going to be raised. They're going to be up from the grave. Right? And they're going to be. They're going to be given life. Okay? But physical life. For what purpose? Next verse. And will come forth, those who did the good deeds of a resurrection of life, those who committed the deeds of evil to a resurrection of judgment. There'll be that final judgment where God, where Jesus raises everyone from the dead out of the tombs in order to separate the sheep from the goats, in other words. That's a simple way of putting it. In other words, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, God, my Father, has given me the authority to do all this. Wow. This is not rivalry. This is oneness. This is unity. And it's grounded in our love for one another. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. Think about this for a moment. Compare Jesus' words, his teaching here in this passage with any other religion. There's nothing like this, folks. There's nothing that even comes close. There is no rival. Muhammad, Buddha, all the other religions, the cults. Seriously. We we should, as Christians, never be ashamed to compare the Word of God with any other religion. To compare what the Word of God has to say about Jesus Christ with any and all other religions. We should never be afraid or ashamed or intimidated to the point we don't want to compare or contrast. Not for the sake of apologizing, but for the sake of proclaiming. Pointing out to people. He's got to be the one. He is the one. His words, his works, they're convincing. They're beyond proof. Proof. I love what he says. And I want to close with, does this reflect my attitude? Does this reflect your attitude? Because we are called to imitate, right? We're supposed to walk in the footsteps of Christ. We're to imitate the love of God. But here's the attitude behind it. I could do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. Look at the last phrase. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know why we get into the Word on Sunday mornings? Because we're seeking after God's will. Why? Because we love Him so much. There's no greater will. Right? There's no greater will. Because there's only one God. There's no greater will because there's only one Son. And beloved, the call to salvation is a call to enter into that oneness that the Father, and that love that the Father and Son have which we have free access to, and we learn about every day when we get into the Word of God. So when you, and I'm preaching to myself because I think of this all the time, being a pastor, being a preacher, getting degrees and stuff like that, the, the biggest danger for me, this goes as far as you want it to go, is that when I read this book, it's just a bunch of information. It's theology alone. It's just good, orthodox-sound doctrine. You know what I want it to do? I always want it to bring me to my knees. Oftentimes, it just makes me weep and cry like a baby. Sometimes those weeping tears are out of guilt because I've sinned. But sometimes it's just out of joy because I'm overwhelmed with how much Jesus loves me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these wonderful words of life. They are life-giving words because we have a life-giving, as we just read, Savior. And Father, the reason we are subordinate to, we submit to, we yield to the lordship of Christ is because the Father has given all life and all judgment into his hands. You certainly trust your Son. So that's why it's blasphemous for us not to. If you trusted him so much that you have given everything into his hands, who are we not to trust him? Oh God, may our trust in Christ, may that little seed, that mustard seed of faith flourish and blossom and grow into a mightier and greater trust in Christ. To get us through the trials of everyday life. And so, when we are on our deathbed, we, with a smile on our face, will not be ashamed, but be ready. And so, that those who are around us and, and watch us will, with assurance and confidence, say they were truly, there's no doubt that this man or this woman was a follower of Christ. May we leave no doubt with our loved ones while we are on our way to the grave so that, Jesus, you will bring us up. You will deliver us. You will give us a new body because you've given us eternal life. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.